yell out when you're there. I'm going to get the guys to put the amplified version up on the screen only because um, this passage that we're going to read, it, it, the amplified just pulls things out of the Hebrew that are just going to help me preach this a little bit stronger, a little bit better to you. So 1 Chronicles chapter 11, verse 12, yell out when you're there. It's going to come up on the screen. It says this, it says, uh, Next to him in rank was Eliezer, the son of Dodo, the Ahohite. He was one of three mighty men. Let me just pause there for a second. David, I'm not sure whether he realized this, had mighty men. David had mighty men. They weren't always mighty men. After David slew Goliath, when David defeated Goliath, you would think that that's kind of a pretty good thing. You could kind of, you know, do a little bit of a Ron Burgundy and after you slew, slew Goliath, introduce yourself to people. They don't know who you are. Say, well, kind of a big deal around here. You know, he killed Goliath. Everybody was happy except one person, King Saul. Authority and insecurity are never a good thing. And Saul, when he turned the radio on, he heard the ladies singing, Saul has slain his thousands, but David is tens of thousands. And Saul became indignant and says, now what more can he have but the kingdom? And so he drove David out of the kingdom. So David went and hid in a cave. Last week we had our men's conference. How many men were at our men's conference last week? Come on, I love this. Can I just tell you that was the loudest cheer? When I said that in the eight, how many men were at our men's conference? And, uh, you know, the rest of the men, they were knitting and uh, doing macrame and arts and crafts and stuff like that. But but the 12, the 12 p.m., you guys have got the men in here. <laughs> so we learned, we learned that when men struggle, when, when, when men face challenges, men retreat into caves. Women don't retreat into caves. When women face stuff, they just talk more. 3,000 words becomes 30,000. And they, they just, they, 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 you know, just by talking, it's like, and, and men, men don't talk problems. Men go quiet. They retreat into their cave because they process. They process. So David is in a cave because he's facing an issue and he doesn't know where to go. He goes into his cave. So last week at Emerge, we, ladies, we taught our, our men that the, retreating into your cave isn't bad. That's not a bad thing. Because whatever went into the cave was not the same as what came out of the cave. A fugitive went into the cave, but a king came out of the cave. Lazarus was a dead man who went into a cave. They rolled a stone. Now it's called a tomb. But when they rolled away the stone, it was no longer a tomb. It was a cave again. And a dead man, now a live man, a resurrected man, come on somebody, came out of the cave. So it's not about, it's not about, it's not about entering the cave. It's about what happens in the cave. We taught our man that, that what the devil wants to do, he, he knows if you come out of that cave, you're going to come out better. You're going to come out bigger. You're going to come out better. You're going to come out stronger. So he wants to keep you in the cave. So he brings you toys in your cave. He brings you stuff to give you a little high, to give you a little fix. He'll bring stuff on the internet and, you know, magazine. He'll bring stuff into your cave because he wants you to die in your cave. He doesn't want you to emerge from your cave. He doesn't want you to come out of your cave. So, so David is in the cave of Adullam. And, and, you know, let me just tell you, ladies, you know, you're yelling at him. You know, we're going to lose the house. Our kids are messed up on drugs and you're all upset with him. And it looks like he's not listening. He's just kind of flicking, you know, surfing through the channels. And uh, you think that, that's a problem. You don't like, and you, yeah, but listen, he is, li he's just in his cave. 
That's why it's called a man cave. It's got his TV and his, his channel, but he's processing. He's processing because he, he fixes things. And he's fixing to fix it. It's a Texas thing. <laughs> Pastor, they're just fixing to fix something around here. And, and so, so he, he, here's, here's the deal. Men, your wife is not something you fix. But men don't get that. We think, you know, you know the, the wives bring the problems. And, you know, this is going on. And then we think, oh, I can fix it. You should just, and see, you don't even, and they walk up and you're like, What's because she don't want to be, she don't want to be fixed. She doesn't want to be listened to. She wants to be felt. She wants to be understood. If that's even possible. Even God's like, uh, I don't know, you're on this. You know, even, and so <laughs> she just wants to, and so, but men try and fix things. And so David's in a cave and he's got this, what do I do? I'm anointed to be king, but now I'm here and the king doesn't like me. But the Bible says that from the tribe of Benjamin, which was Saul's tribe, 400 men who were in debt, in distress and in despair come to David in the cave of Adullam. And they turn that cave into a stronghold. And the Bible says that just within, within a short space of time, David takes these men in debt, despair, and distress, and he teaches them to throw the spear with the right hand and with the left. They become his mighty warriors. He has 400 mighty men, but over the 400, he has 30, and over the 30, he has three. The three are Benaiah who fell into a pit on a snowy day and killed a lion that he found in the pit when he got there. He once wrested a spear off an Egyptian. There was no spear in his hand, but he wrested the spear off a nine-foot-tall Egyptian and killed him with his own spear. Benaiah was the chief of the, of the three. Next to him was Jacobim the Hashmanite. <laughs> Sounds Scottish right there, doesn't it? Jacobim the Hashmanite. He slew a thousand men wearing nothing but a kilt. <laughs> Smashed them right in the head. With a wee bit of haggis. And so, you know, so he he was number two. And then the Bible says, that may not be in the Bible. But anyway, the Bible says, the Bible says, next to him in rank was Eliezer, the son of Dodo, the Ahohite. He was one of the three mighty men. He was with David at Pazdamim, where, where David had long before slain Goliath. Now, I want you to underline this or repeat this. Say these words. Say, and there, come on, and there, the Philistines were gathered for battle. So it says that they gathered at Pazdamim where David had long before, this is in the Amplified, where David had long before slain Goliath. And it was at the point, it was at that place where David slew Goliath that the Philistines gathered for battle. Now watch this. And there was a, a plot of ground full of barley or lentils. The men of Israel fled before the Philistines and Eliezer, one of the three, stood in the midst of that plot and defended it and slew the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand cleaved to the sword and the Lord saved by a great victory and deliverance. So today I want to preach part three of heroic traits. So these are going to be point seven, eight, and nine. But if it's your first time here, it'll be point one, two, and three because you missed the other ones, but you can podcast about the point seven, eight, and nine. So let me give you the, the first one here uh, about what I call heroic traits. If we're going to be a hero to our generation, can I just tell you, you were born to be a hero to somebody. You were born to be a hero to somebody. So the, the, first, the first thing about heroes is heroes fight the battle of maintenance. Heroes fight the battle of maintenance. Now, I've been a Christian for a number of years, but I've never seen this in Scripture because I guess it's not that glamorous. You know, every time we talk about, you know, going to a prayer meeting, because we're going to a prayer meeting, so we're going to, we're going to take some ground from the devil. 
And every time we're going we're gonna to get into spiritual warfare because we're going to take some ground from the devil. We're going to do prayer and fasting because, you know, church, we're going to take some ground from the devil. We're going to take some ground in North Canada. We're going to take some ground east. We're going to take some ground south. We're going to take some ground central. We want to take ground in our high schools. We want to take ground in colleges. And, and, and everyone gets excited about taking ground, taking ground, something new, taking ground. There's always something exciting and new. But what I like about Eliezer is this was the plot of ground that they took years earlier when David slew Goliath, and yet it was the enemy that regroups and gathers right at that plot of ground, right on that piece of field, right in that territory. So it tells me that just because I took ground doesn't mean that it's automatic. I've still got to fight the battle to maintain that territory. All right, you, you, you look like, okay, uh, so let me, let me give you an example. This is not, not to be political, but just, just an example. The, the surge that we had in, in Iraq, the surge that we had, meant that in, from 2008 to 2011, because of the success of the surge, Iraq had democracy. Iraq had its, its first three years of unbroken peace. It had peace, democracy, and freedom from 2008 to 2011 until in 2011, we had people who were smarter than the Bible that decided, hey, we, we ought to just ignore what the Scripture says and let's pull all of our troops, let's pull all of our forces out of the ground that we have taken because we don't need to fight the battle to maintain territory that's taken the scripture teaches that if you retreat in your dominion, you will lose the territory you once had. And so the enemy has come in and now it is overrun and ISIS are going crazy and people are being slaughtered every day because we, we retreated. So what does that mean? That means that when you take ground, when you take ground financially, when you take ground emotionally, when you take ground relationally, when you take ground spiritually, when you have a breakthrough with purity, when you have a breakthrough in your, you, you'll find that it's not, it's, the devil doesn't say, oh, they had a breakthrough, I'll leave them. I'll find another. No, no, he, he, he'll come and regroup right at that place where you slew his giant, where you took down his Goliath, where you took the head off. He's going to come back around there and see whether you're willing to fight to maintain ground you took. Okay, you're still giving me that look. All right, let, let, me, let me explain it this way. Many years ago, you know, Leanne and I, we've been married a few years and, you know, things were, and so I said, God, you know, what's, what's going on? Why? How come she's changed? And uh, God says, oh, you know, the, the issues in your marriage is actually not her. I'm like, oh, <laughs> I've got a little list here. <laughs> They're all her, God. One common denominator, all her. And God says, actually, Jurgs, you're the Barry Jack wagon here. He says, she's a product of your husband. Oh, what do you mean? He says, well, when you were courting her. <laughs> you'd pull the chair. You'd open the door. You'd sit there at dinner and just listen. And Susan said, what? <laughs> Silly Susan. And that made you feel like, oh, that's probably how I would have felt too. No, go on. I'm really interested. And, and you're engaged and, and, and you're listening to stuff and, and you stay, stay focused, stay attention. Where on earth is this going? You just said, 
hey, do you like the, do you like the restaurant? And the next minute, you know all about Susan, and she broke up with Bruce, and Bruce isn't the right guy for her. I think Stephen should. And, and you're, gonna, you're just like, do you like the restaurant? And it's all over here, but you're engaged. You're, you're listening. You got, there's no smell from any part of you. No smell. You know, your breath is good. You're engaged. But then something happens. You get married and for a man, the hunt is over. Rings on the finger. And so now, you know, she, she, she comes home and you're just thinking, you know, I'm the hunter of one. And, and you're wondering, where, where, where's the romance? Where's the sparks? Came home from work. I'm expecting because I'm your lay. I'm expecting that. Where's it gone? And it's gone because you changed. Because you, well, you think you don't need to do it anymore. But how you get something is how you keep something. The energy it took to get it is the energy that it now takes to maintain it. So great, great heroes recognize there is a battle for maintenance. Last year, last week, sorry, men got set free. Don't be fooled, don't be fooled men, that the devil ain't going to try and come back and take that territory again. But can I just tell you the energy and the victory? Don't stop coming. If you've got a breakthrough in the house of God, don't pull back from attending the house. Step it up. If you're an infrequent church attender, become a regular church attender. Draw a line in the sand. So I'm going to be in church because this is the house of breakthrough. If you've got a breakthrough in Connect Group, don't just say, well, I'll inf- you know, when nothing's on on a Wednesday. No, no, I'm going to be in Connect Group come hell. If you've got a breakthrough in prayer meeting on a Tuesday morning, don't shrink back keep going there whatever it costs to get it that's the price of keeping it it's the price of keeping it so I discovered it was romance it was listening it was dating that that, that got me my beautiful bride so I recognize now that's what's going to keep her it's expensive when people say are you a prosperity church dang right we're a prosperity church I need to prosper so I can look after this bride. I got one life. I got one life, one wife. I got a model to a generation. 48% of marriages end in divorce inside and outside the church. I don't want that. I don't want my kids to hear me preach the gospel but live a different life. So while it's expensive, it's, a, it's much cheaper than the alternative. It's much cheaper than divorce, much cheaper than losing, much cheaper than losing the, 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 uh, the respect of my kids and the respect of a generation. I'd rather pay the price. Somebody say amen. amen. See, there's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a battle. There's a fight to battle for maintenance. Uh, many years ago, I remember reading the, the, the story. It's not in the Bible, but it's a, Jewish, it's a Jewish story about a righteous preacher who was sent to Sodom and Gomorrah before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. And he would preach. He would preach every day trying to make converts, but nobody ever converted. Nobody ever got saved. Nobody ever changed. After about six, six years of preaching in Sodom and Gomorrah, he's, it's lunchtime and he's sitting by a well and he's just getting some water. It's very hot, Middle Eastern sun. A little boy about 10 or 11 years of age comes and sits on the well next to him. And the little boy recognizes him and says, you're that preacher. You're that preacher guy. He says, yes, I am. He says, oh, my, my father and my brothers, they laugh at you. And the, the righteous preacher kind of drops his head. He says, they laugh because you've never got anybody converted. How long have you been here preaching, preacher? He said, about six years. Has anybody gotten converted? He drops his head all shamed and says, no, no one. And the little boy says, then why do you keep going? Why do you persist? 
The man lifts his head. He's got tears on his cheeks. And he looks at the young boy. He says, when I came here six years ago, I preached with everything I had because I believed I could convert them. He says, but six years later, I still preach with the same level of passion, with the same level of conviction so that they don't convert me. See, there's always a, you and I live in a jacked up, cracked up, messed up, broken down, beat down world that is trying to throw stuff at us. And whether you realize it or not, when, when you secure territory, it is not a time to shrink back. It is a time to step up and enforce, come on somebody, enforce the cross of Jesus Christ. Can you, if you believe that, give God a great shout. Say amen. All right, number two, number two, number two, heroes believe that they are their brother's keeper. Heroes believe that they are their brother's keeper. What do you mean by that? Well, let me, let me explain it this way. In John 15, 13, Jesus says, Greater love has no man than this, than he lay down his life for his friend. Greater love has no man than this, than he lay down his life for his friends. And Jesus obviously modeled that because he laid down his life for, for friends and people he hadn't even met yet. So the first murder was committed when Cain killed Abel. And God comes to Cain and says, hey, where's your brother Abel? And, and Cain's like, what am I, my brother's keeper? So it was a murderer that said, hey, I'm not responsible for anybody else but myself. The spirit of a murderer says, hey, I ain't responsible for anybody else but myself. You know, we have a lot of talk, a lot of motivational seminars where, you know, people, I want to find my purpose in life. It was so amazing. I went and they had the, they had the hot coals and I walked across the hot coals. <laughs> and I found my purpose. And can I just tell you, if you found your purpose, that's why you're here on the planet. You're here on the planet to find your purpose. But can I just tell you, if your purpose is all about you, you ain't found your purpose. There's an old Chinese proverb that says, Man who is wrapped up in uh, himself make very small package. <laughs> Man who is wrapped up in herself make a very small package. See, if your life is only about you, it's a very small life. If your world is all about you, you have just reduced your world to a very small world. You'll find whenever God reveals purpose to people, it is always about somebody else. Abram, Abraham, I will bless you to be a blessing. And all the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. Moses, Moses, behold, I send you to Pharaoh and you will deliver my children Israel out of his hand. Gideon, Gideon, you mighty man of valor, rise in the strength of yours and you shall defeat Midianite as one man. Am I not, have I not sent you? It is always purpose linked to other people about impacting not just your life, but a generation around about you, leaving a legacy for the next life. If you think you found your purpose, but you are at the center of it, you haven't found your purpose, you have found your skill set. You have found a gifting. Oh man, I'm making so much money. I'm making, oh, I've got so much success. I think, I, no, no, you found a gift. And that's awesome that you got a gift, but employ that gift for something bigger than just you. Employ that gift for something greater than just your world, your empire. All right, let, let, me just, let me just kind of push on this a little bit. Let me push on this a little bit. When you come to church, when you come, when you come to church, 
Don't just come for you. Don't just come for you. Jesus says, where two or more are gathered together, I am in the midst. So church doesn't work with one. You can't clap with one hand. A lot of people come to church and it's like, well, we'll see what's happening with it. I don't like that praise song. No, no, this one's all right. No, 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 don't, don't, don't wait. Don't wait for the band to bring the praise. Now listen, I know, I know the devil doesn't like, you know, the fact that we got great praise and worship. I mean, we got, you know, we got the Cullens. I mean, it is unfair. If I was the devil, I'd move out of San Diego just because Mark and Ali Cullen attend this church. If I, but anyway, I'm not, anyway, so, but he, let me tell you, he's not upset. He's not terrified that we got great praise and worship. That doesn't terrify the devil. What terrifies the devil is when you have a whole church that turns up on a Sunday bringing their praise with them. It doesn't matter if it doesn't matter if Pastor Matt Tuggles up here with a banjo. I'm bringing my praise. It doesn't matter if we just got percussion up there. I'm bringing my praise. I ain't. It doesn't matter what the band before the first chord is struck, before the first drum beats hit. I'm going to lift my mouth. I'm going to lift my voice. I'm going to begin to praise God because I'm bringing my praise with me. Now let me explain why that's important. The Bible says that God inhabits the praises of His people. God inhabits the praise. When your praise goes up, the presence of God comes down. When your praise goes up, the presence of God comes down. And where the presence of God is, His power flows. Where the presence of God is, His power flows. You literally create an atmosphere. You create an environment where people can experience breakthrough. People can experience freedom. People can experience the supernatural touch of God. People can experience a healing and a miracle in that environment. Okay, you're giving me that look. All right, so... so in, in, in uh, Joshua 6, God says to Joshua, you know, march around Jericho. I've given Jericho into your hand, but I need you to march around it. I need you to march around it once a day for six days, but don't say anything. Because I want you to know it's not the way that you march around. I want you to see the walls every day and see it's an impregnable, impossible city. I want you, you know, to look and know that it's not a wrecking ball that's going to bring these things down. It's something else. On the seventh day, get up early, march around the city seven times. And on the seventh time, I'm going to let you open your mouth. And it'll come to pass when the priests bearing the ram's horns blow the ram's horn, when they make a long blast, that all the people shall shout with a great shout. And that shout will bring the walls down. Then each man may go up and enter into Jericho and despoil Jer- and take Jericho and take territory. Your, your praise going up helps your brother behind you and your friend in front of you and the person beside you enter into what was holding. There were walls that were keeping them down and your praise don't. You have no idea as you begin to sing, your name is higher. Your name is greater. All my, the person behind you may have just had a 
diagnosis from the doctor that said terminal. They may have got a letter that week saying foreclosure imminent. They may have got a, another letter saying the repossessor is going to come and they walk into church and they walk broke down. They walk in beat down. They walk in broken hearted and heavy hearted. But all of a sudden you begin to sing, all my hope is in you. Your word unfailing. Your promise unshaken. And something in the atmosphere that you create around about them causes hope to rise and the power of God to flow into their lives. Okay, all right. So people looking like you're just trying to create a hype church. I'm, t- I'm preaching the truth. So Paul and Silas, Paul was beaten, beaten with rods. So then they, then they, they chain them to, to the prison walls. And the Bible says, in the midnight hour, they cried more, more, more. We're the rebel. Oh, I'm sorry, that was Billy Idol. No, I'm sorry, they're in the... They're in, the, they're in the prison. They're chained to the, the prison walls. And the Bible says when midnight came, in the midnight hour, they began to sing praises to God. Paul and Silas in a prison singing praises to God. The Bible says that because their praises went up, the presence came down. Because the presence came down, there was an earthquake that shook the prison so that every cell door busted open and every chain and every shackle fell off the wrists and fell off the feet. Men who were sleeping, men who were despondent, men who had given up hope, men who had no idea. There was two men praising in this cell, but the entire, you have no idea. When we can build a church where people bring their praise with them, because this is not about how I'm feeling. This is not about what I'm walking through. I am my brother's keeper. I'm going to bring my praise and it's going to go up because the person behind me might just need a miracle. The person beside me may just need a breakthrough. The person in front of me may just need a fresh touch of heaven. You are your brother's keeper. Create an atmosphere around your life. Do you know if the devil can steal your praise, if the devil can steal your praise, he can take all your stuff. You're looking at me with that look again. What was the whole battle with Job? Satan says, if I take his stuff, he'll stop praising. The only reason that he's got stuff is because, and God says, no, 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 he's got stuff because he's a praiser. And the devil's like, that's a lie. The only reason he praises because he's got stuff. You let me take his stuff and he will withdraw from praise. So Satan wipes everything out. Job chapter 1 wipes everything out that Job has. But Job chapter 1 finishes. Job clothes himself in sackcloth and ashes and worships. Chapter 2 strikes Job. Sickness after sickness. His immune system so debilitated that his boils breaking out on his skin. Job's wife comes to him. She says, why do you hold fast to your integrity? Look around. We've lost everything. The God that you're holding on to has obviously forsaken you. And he says to his wife, he says, you speak as the foolish women. Should I accept good from God and not testing? And then Job 13, 15. Job says these words. He says, even if he was to slay me, yet will I trust him. Even if he was to slay me, yet will I serve him. Do you know there are like 42 chapters in Job? 
Satan is all over the front pages. You never see Satan rear his ugly head again because he cannot stand against the man or the woman that has drawn a line in the sand that says, come hell or high water, I'm going to praise because right now my wife is in despair. My wife is in darkness. My wife is overcome with grief. My wife is overtaken by sorrow. My wife is, is broken heart and I can't afford to not praise. I'm going to praise and I'm going to trust in your goodness. I'm going to trust. And the Bible says that God extended their lives, extended the length of their days and God restored back to Job twice of everything that was taken from him. So there was no daughter in the land as beautiful as Job's daughters. And he was rich in livestock and cattle. God, everything the devil stole, God brought back to him and doubled it. Come on, somebody, say amen. See, we understand that we are our brother's keeper. We are our brother's keeper. Last one, number three, numero tres, or number nine, if you've been following the thing. Uh, number three is heroes fight even when they're alone. Heroes fight even when they're alone. The Bible says that he, he positioned himself in he positioned himself in the midst of the field. All, all Israel had fled. If we can put that scripture up again. It says, All Israel had fled, but Eliezer positioned himself in the midst of the field and drew his sword. My name is Eliezer Montoya. And you killed my father. Prepare to die. He may or may not have said that. I'm not sure. But anyway, he's, so he, he's, he positions himself in the midst of the field. What's interesting is the name Eliezer literally means God helps. God helps. If you were to go a little bit deeper in, in typology, Eliezer is a type of the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, I will send you a helper. God the helper will come to you. I will not leave you as orphans. So in Genesis 22, Abraham uh, takes Isaac to Mount Moriah to, to offer Isaac as a burnt offering. And there's a ram caught in the thicket and there's an exchange. And that, that's a picture of Jesus dying for us in the exchange that, that, you know, we deserve death. But instead, we got set free and somebody else was substituted. Somebody died. Somebody atoned for our sin in our place. That's Genesis 22. Genesis 23 is the death of Sarah. Sarah, Abraham's first covenant wife, dies this is, this is Israel. This is God's first bride, Israel, dies because now there's a new covenant. And the new covenant is for us, the Gentiles, to come in. But Genesis 24 is when Abraham sends out Eliezer of Damascus, who before Isaac was born was heir in his house. And what is Eliezer sent out to do? He's sent out to find a bride for his son. We live in Genesis 24. This is the, this is the Genesis 24 uh, you know, hour where the Holy Ghost is here on earth finding a bride without spot or blemish for the anyway and so so it's LEA so so you where is God in my struggle where is God in my battle he has positioned himself in the midst of a field what I like about Eliezer is this is not his field that this is not his lentils these are not his but it doesn't matter whether he likes barley or likes lentils he has positioned himself in this field because not only is he his brother's keeper but he has positioned himself in this field because he refuses to be one of those people that only hears in private in public but does not apply 
terrify in private. You, you, are, you, you don't terrify the devil because you heard a great sermon in church on Sunday. You terrify the devil when what you heard on Sunday, you apply on Tuesday. You apply on Wednesday. Eliezer stood in the midst of a field. There was nobody with him. He was alone in the field, but he wasn't going with emotion. He wasn't going with popular opinion. Everybody fled, but he stood there. 300 Philistines coming towards him, but he was refusing to back down. He was refusing fear running through his body, outnumbered, outgunned, outmanned, but he wasn't living according to feelings or convenience. He was living according to conviction. He was living according to principle. And he just pulls out his sword and says, if I die on this hill, I'm going to die living for God rather than tuck tail and run and just live the life of a coward. Come on, somebody. So he stands in the midst of the field, 300, and first head comes off, another one, another one, cunning out, like this. Before you know this, there's 250 down. He's standing on corpses, elevated. Now there's, he's got 100 down, 200 to go, thinking, oh man, this is better than I thought. He keeps going, now it's 150. It's like, man, I got halfway through. Man, it's going to be a great story. He killed half of them before they got him. He's still going. Now there's two, he's 200 down and only 100 left. He's like, man, momentum's on my side. I may just make it. Yeah, another 50 down. Now there's 250 and 50. Come on, bring it up. And he takes them all out. He takes them all out. Because he lives by principle. What, what is living by principle? A principle is a predetermined decision. That's what a principle is. It doesn't matter how I feel. It doesn't matter how I feel. There, there are things you've got to remove from the table. When I got married to Leanne on, on my wedding day, my mother-in-law said to me, Jürgen, throw out the parachute. I'm like, all right. Yeah. Yeah? What parachute? She's like, no, 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 the D word. Oh, D word. Course, dancing's from the devil. Now she said, "No, not dancing. Divorce." Oh, what? She goes, "Just remove it from the table. Divorce is not an option. If the plane's going down, you're not bailing." That's called a principle. So I made a decision. I'm living by that principle. She's made it very easy to live by that principle. But I made a decision there that's not on the table. That you know. There are things that everyone goes through. There are times where you're going to be alone and battling alone. You know, there's probably not a week that goes by where I don't get bombarded with, you know, three thoughts from the, from the enemy. The first one, he tells me I've got nothing to say. That my last sermon, that was my last sermon. The last time I had something to say was my last sermon. I ain't got anything left. I got nothing new to say every week. Then the second one that he says to me is, is you're, you're, you're batting way out of your league. You're punching way above your, you're from Dapdo. Low socioeconomic. You're the son of an East German atheist. What have you got to say to these people? This is Southern California. It's, it's kind of, you know, middle to upper. Who are you to speak to them? And then the third one, he says, is, man, you ain't got the goods. You're not qualified. Church of 10,000. It's... Come on, do you read when you look in the mirror? And the truth is, when I look in the mirror, I, I see I see me, but I don't see. But you need to understand, we're not called just to look in. Paul says, I look into a glass darkly. He says, but when I look into him, when I look into God, when, when, when you look to God, God looks at you. He doesn't see you as you are. He sees you as you is. 
He sees you as you're meant to be. So, so every, there's not a week that goes by where intimidation or, or fear, but you know, you do it. How many people know that God does not call those who are qualified, but rather he qualifies the called? Come on, somebody. That you got to do it despite the fear. Don't, don't live down to what the devil tells you. Don't live down to your past, your background, your experience or inexperience. Fooey to all of that. Live according to the promise of God. Live according to the word of God. Live according. You know, I may not have all the, but I know somebody who does. And let me just tell you something, in my weakness, His strength is made perfect. So where do you go when you're alone? Where do you go when you struggle in all these thoughts? Eliezer positioned himself in the midst of the field. And the Bible says he slew all these Philistines. And the Bible says his hand cleaved to the sword. They literally had to pry his fingers. They had to pry his fingers because after fighting and killing 300 people, his hand cleaved to the sword when you're outgunned when you're outnumbered when all hell has come against you when the people who are your friends when the people said hey I got your back dog have all tucked tail and run and you feel abandoned you feel alone you feel isolated what do you cleave to Eliezer's, Eliezer's hand cleaved to the sword the Bible says take up the sword of the spirit which is the word of God do you know there's nothing more powerful in the universe than the Word of God? Okay, a few of you. The rest of you, let me just tell you, there's nothing more powerful than the Word of God. Nothing more powerful. When God said, let there be light, there was no there was darkness just had to bow its knee and allow light to come. Jesus in the wilderness three times defeats the devil. How does he do it? It is written. It is written. It is written. Thou shalt worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. And the devil fled, waiting for an opportune time. The devil cannot defeat the Word of God. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my Word endureth forever. If you're holding on to the Word, you're holding on to something that's going to outlast the heavens above and the ground beneath. You are, you, if, if you're in a shipwreck, you may be, you may be the, you know, you may be Michael Phelps. You may be able to swim faster than anybody. You may be able to hold your breath for five minutes underwater. But I'm telling you, if you're in a shipwreck out at sea, you, it, at some point that sea is going to be bigger than your ability to hold your breath or swim back to shore. But if a life-saving ring comes past, you can hold onto that. You can hold onto that thing for days because it was designed not to go under. That's the word of God. In the storms of life, in the challenges, in in the tem- in the tempest, you hold onto the word of God. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my word. What's going to get you through to the other side? The word of God. The word of God. The word of God. The word of God. And his hand cleaved to the the word of God to the sword and the Lord brought about a great victory. What's your destiny? God's destiny in your life is to bring about a great victory. God's destiny is to bring out a great deliverance, but you've got to cleave to the Word of God. Amen. Come on, give God a great shout.